Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, let's open those up to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, we're going to be looking at from verse 8 all the way to the end of chapter 7 this morning. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 8, we'll go all the way to the end of chapter 7. So we're mostly there. Let me open up with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity that we have to sing your praises, that we have to come together as the body of Christ and uh, to lift up your name and to study your word. Lord, as we take a look at your servant Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and 7 today, Lord, I pray that you would make us like Stephen, that you would make us people of good reputation, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and fill us with wisdom. God, that we would be filled with your grace and your power. We ask that in your son's precious name. Amen. So last week, at the beginning of chapter 6, we talked about how the early church was a good church. It was a great church, but it wasn't a perfect church because there's no such thing as a perfect church. With the massive influx of people that were coming to the faith on a daily basis, the apostles were struggling to meet all the physical needs that would arise within the church. Uh, and one of the issues that came up was that the widows of the Hellenistic Jews were being left out of the daily distribution of the food and the Hellenistic Jews were murmuring or complaining that their widows were being left out. And so in order for the apostles to stay focused on their primary responsibilities within the church, uh, which is prayer and the ministry of the word of God, you know, so the preaching and teaching of the word, that is what they're supposed to be focused on. They ask that the entire assembly come together and assign seven men to the task of ensuring that no one misses their portion of food. And so these men were said were supposed to be people of good reputation. They needed to be men who were full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. And the idea pleases the whole company of the church. So they choose seven men to take on this responsibility. And one of those men who were chosen was Stephen. And what we're about to see in the rest of chapter 6 and through all the way to the end of chapter 7, we're going to get a glimpse into Stephen's character. We're going to get a small glimpse into his ministry. And then we're going to witness the martyrdom of Stephen, which means the death of Stephen due to his faith. And the glimpse into the character and the ministry is brief because Luke is going to focus mostly on Stephen's response to the accusations that have been leveled at him, and he's going to focus on the death of Stephen at the hands of the religious leaders. And I mentioned last week, uh, at the end of the service, and again in an email reminder this week, that I'm not going to go through the entire entirety of chapter 7. That's 60 verses. You're welcome for that. Um, I didn't want to break up the sermon um, because it, it, 
it's all one idea that Stephen is, is flowing into to make his case against his accusers. And so I didn't want to break that up into pieces, um, but I also, that's a lot to read. And so I ask that you read that beforehand or uh, read it after if you haven't read that beforehand. We're going to hit the main points that Stephen made there. Um, but if you haven't read it before, go read that after the service. It won't take, it won't take that long. Um, but as you read, I want you to focus in on the similarities between Stephen and Jesus. All right, there's notable similarities here. Um, so we see Stephen, he's going about his ministry. Right? He's doing the, he, he had a ministry that was greater than just making sure that the widows got their food. Not that, that was, there's anything wrong with that being your sole ministry, if that is your sole ministry. Um, but Stephen is representing Christ, and he is doing many wonderful things. And so that is a part of his ministry. And as he's doing his ministry, you see people begin to be upset with Stephen. And so this is going to lead to theological disagreements. And when the people who are disagreeing with him theologically can't stand up to his wisdom, they decide to go a different route. When debate ends, they begin a, camp a campaign of lies. They're doing whatever they can to get their opposition out of their way. Debate ends, a campaign of lies begins. And so for those of us who walked through the entirety of the Matthew of Gospel together, this should sound really familiar, right? I mean, we've heard this story before, haven't we? So they begin about lying about things that they've heard Stephen say, right? They're telling people, hey, go tell them you heard him say this. Go tell people that you heard him say that. Or they're taking things that he said and they're purposefully taking it out of context, right? They know that's not what he meant when he said that, but they're going to pretend that that's what he meant when he said it so that they can get upset about it, all right? And then because of this, and because they've brought the crowd into an uproar, Stephen is seized and they've taken him before the Sanhedrin. All right, and there we see Stephen give his defense. In that defense, we have the longest recorded sermon in a book full of sermons. All right, Acts has several sermons in it. This is the longest one that we're going to find. And there's a lot going down there, but it's ultimately going to boil down to Stephen calling out the Jewish people for their rebellion against the Holy Spirit and the murder of the Messiah. All right, so, I mean, the same thing that Peter's been saying in each one of his sermons, Stephen's going to say something very similar here. And as you might expect, it doesn't go well. Right? When you've already got somebody upset with you and you say something that's true and is even more upsetting, it goes poorly. Uh, and then he is martyred for his faith. And as far as we are aware, Stephen is the first martyr in Christian history. The first martyr of the church. Certainly not the last, but uh, probably the first. And when we get to the end of chapter 7, we're going to be introduced to a young man named Saul. All right? Saul will eventually become the Apostle Paul. All right? It is likely Paul who shared this account with Luke. So could you imagine being part, be, probably being the leader of the very first Christian martyr, right? The very first martyr in the church, and then being the one to share that with the person who is putting it down in, on paper for infamy forever, right? Can you imagine the humility that Paul and 
like what he must have experienced as he was sharing this with, with Luke. So let's take a look here at the beginning of our lengthy passage. We're going to start in verse 8, chapter 6. It says, Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from some of the members of the Freedmen Synagogue, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, and they began to argue with Stephen. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. So as I said, we see a little bit more about Stephen's character here in, in verse 8, uh, and a little bit about his ministry. Um, and that's what we know about Stephen so far from chapter 6. He is a man of good reputation. He's a man who is full of the Holy Spirit. He is full of wisdom. He is full of grace. And he's full of power because of that relationship that he has with the Holy Spirit. And if, if we're followers of Christ, this should be what people think of when they think of us. Right, because of our relationship with God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit, we should be the people with the best reputation on the planet. Right? Wouldn't you agree? Right? If we are following Christ, our reputation should stand above and beyond any non-believer that we come across. That doesn't mean that we're perfect because perfection isn't something that we're going to achieve this side of heaven. That's why Jesus came. That's why we needed his sacrifice because perfection is not something that we can grasp. But it should mean that we are people who are striving to be more like Christ. We're striving to be the best that we can. We should be quick to offer forgiveness and quick to ask for forgiveness when we're the one who has screwed things up. We should be the type of people that our family, our friends, our neighbors, and our coworkers, they can call on us when they need something. Right? A need arose in the church, and Stephen was one of the first names that popped out into someone's mind. Stephen would be good for that. He's good at helping people. He's good at being there when people need him. He has a great reputation. Those same people should know us to be honest and trustworthy as we're striving to make the reputation of Christ wonderful among all people everywhere. All right, we want to represent Jesus well to the world. This was who Stephen was. A man of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, full of grace, full of power. Stephen was a man who desired to be like Jesus. He made it a point to be like Jesus. We don't know a lot about him, but that's what we know. Is that he wanted to be like Jesus. But even though Stephen was a man with all these characteristics, we can't miss that he was still opposed by those who have no desire to hear and submit to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? The gospel is a stumbling block for those who are separated from God. Paul, Saul, who is going to become Paul, wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 to 25. He says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? 
For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. The gospel is foolish to those who don't believe. He continues on, he says, For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks or to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. So no matter what your reputation is in this world, no matter how good you are, no matter how nice you are, you cannot make it well enough on your own reputation with sinners that they are in need of a Savior. Like just you being a nice person, you being kind, you being useful is not going to sit well with someone who is separated from God when you say you are a sinner in need of a Savior, you can't live life the way that you want to live it, that God has rules that He wants us to follow that are based on His character that are for our best life. And when we go out on our own, we destroy the goodness that has been set forward before us in God's power, in God's character, and in God's law. So if people are inherently inclined to walk away from God from birth, eventually you're going to have to love someone to call them out on their sin. Right? Eventually, you're going to have to tell people you can't live that way because if you do, it puts you at odds with God. Right? You can't call yourself a loving person if you're going to let someone continue to do something that is detrimental to their health that's detrimental to their well-being if you never say anything to them based on that you don't love that person if what they're doing is putting them at odds with a holy and righteous god and we are faithful with that message to say this is the standard by which god expects us to live eventually is going to oppose us because of jesus Eventually, someone is going to be upset. They're going to stand against that, maybe with everything that they have. And because, I mean, people, who wants to hear that? People don't want to hear that. And this is what Stephen ran into with the Freedmen Synagogue. So these men are apparently Greek-speaking former slaves that have gathered together to worship And they are from various locations. One of the locations that's mentioned in verse 9 is Cilicia. Cilicia was the Apostle Paul's home region. So it's likely that he attended this synagogue. He's seeing all that the way, they'll become the way, the Christian faith. They see all that's going on. And the Apostle Paul, who is formerly a Pharisee, is going to oppose this with everything he's got. Because that goes against everything that he believes. So he may have been one of the leaders in that synagogue. He may have been seeing all that was happening. He may have been one of the people that were trying to stand against and debate with Stephen. We don't know. But he was in that area. And that would explain his presence at the end of chapter 7. Right? Affirming, clapping, applauding Stephen's death. And we're not told why Stephen is being opposed by these men. But when he gets into the debate with them, 
they're not able to stand up against him. The reason? Because the Holy Spirit is speaking through him. Right? This is the promise that Luke made in Jesus made this through Luke in Luke 21. All right, he says, when you go stand before these rulers, when you get opposed like this, don't worry about what you're going to say. Don't pre-plan, well, I'll say this, and if they say that, then I'll say this. Don't worry about that. The Holy Spirit's got you covered. And so as they stand opposed to Him, they can't withstand the Holy Spirit that's speaking through Him. And so when their attempts to out-argue Stephen fail, they decide to move forward about, with lying about Him instead. We see that in verses 11 to 15. It says, They secretly persuaded some men to say, We heard Him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, so they came, seized him, and took him to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said, This man never stopped speaking against this holy place and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So the people lie generally about Stephen in order to get him in front of the Sanhedrin. And then after they, that was just saying, hey, he said some things against Moses. He said some things against God. And then as he's standing in front of the Sanhedrin, the accusations get a little bit more specific. They say he's speaking out against the temple and he's speaking out against the law. Now, for the Jews, this is a very serious accusation. There is nothing more precious to the Jewish people than the temple and the law. Right? The temple was the holy place in their mind. The holy place. That is the place where God's presence meets with His people. And then you have the law, which was the revelation of God's mind and His will. And so if you oppose these things, you're opposing God Himself. And so speaking out against either one is blasphemy. And if you're charged with blasphemy, you can be killed. You should be killed according to God's law. And here, Stephen is accused of speaking out against both. All right, he's accused of speaking out against the law and against the temple. And he's in good company because these are some of the exact same accusations that were brought against Christ. Right? Here are those similarities. And it makes sense that Jesus would be accused of the same things Jesus was accused of because he's teaching about Jesus. Right? That is his message. That is his mission. That is his ministry. He's teaching about all that Jesus had taught the disciples. Jesus had some very serious things to say about the law and the temple, and they did, the Jews did not care for Jesus' view on either of those things. Right? Jesus was accused of disrespecting the law, but Jesus didn't disrespect the law. He came to fulfill the law. What Jesus showed no respect for was the scribes and the Pharisees' misinterpretations. What he showed no respect for were the man-made traditions that they have turned into religious law. Like, you can't go but this far on a Sunday. Right? There was a certain distance that they were allowed to walk on a Sunday. Right? So you're, you're making stuff up now. Right? It says to honor the Sabbath, to keep it holy. And you're you started putting up steps. You can go this many steps unless you're going to get food from someone else's house. And then you can go this many more. Right? 
beginning of good Baptists, right? As long as food's involved, we can go just a little further. So he just disrespects their misinterpretations. He disrespects the man-made laws that they put around God's law in order to protect God's law. And he also didn't respect or didn't disrespect the temple. The temple served a wonderful purpose all the way up until the point where he came on the scene. Right? The temple was a placeholder. That's all it was ever meant to be. Was a placeholder. It's a shadow of something bigger, of something greater. But because of the death, life, and resurrection of Christ, the temple is no longer necessary. Like we don't need to offer up sacrifices on a bloody altar over and over and over again. And we no longer have a place that is separated that God goes and we have to stay separated from because at the death of Christ, the veil was torn, opening up the presence of God to anybody who will believe. So the temple is no longer necessary. The people of God meet with God through Jesus. He is the temple. So given that Jesus dealt with these same false accusations, it makes sense that Stephen is going to meet them as well because he's teaching these things. And chapter 6 closes with an interesting statement by Luke. He says, uh, before we get into Stephen's defense against the false accusations, it says that the Sanhedrin looked at him intently and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. That seems like a really strange thing to say in this moment. Like, what does this mean? Well, some interpret this to mean that his face began to glow in the same way that Moses' face would glow when he would go up on the mountain and meet with God and get the law. Some, are, some think that this right here means that with his face looking like that of an angel, it was glowing, literally glowing, as though he was reflecting Christ in that very moment. Possibly, right? Maybe that's what's happening. Or it could be Luke's way of affirming, Stephen, affirming Stephen's closeness with God and God's closeness with Stephen. It doesn't have to mean that his face was glowing. Maybe it wasn't a literal glow, but there's still something there that shows that there was a divine touch involved. Right? There's something different about people who spend quality and quantity time with God. Right? When we spend time in his presence, we begin to reflect him. And people take notice of that. And I think that's part of what's happening here. One way or another, right? when we are in a type of persecution, when we face trials like this, there's something in us when we are close in our relationship with God that reflects that shining divine nature. It just shows God is with us in these moments, in these hardships in these trials. And something of that nature is happening here. It may well be that his face lit up like a glowworm, you know? Or it could just be that he is at peace in this moment because he knows that God has got him in this moment. And so after this, chapter 7 starts with the high priest asking, are these things true? And so as I was reading this, one thing that came to my mind was I thought, man, Stephen has a hard time with topical sermons. Right? I struggle with them as well because I like to give a lot of context. And so it's hard to parachute into an idea 
without giving a lot of context. But I don't, I've never backed up quite as far as, as Stephen did um, to give the context for his, for his sermon. Um, he goes to give his defense against his accusers, and he takes that all the way back to the time of Abraham. All right, he begins all the way back with Abraham. He starts there. He tells the story of Abraham's relationship with God, about how God called him out of his home country, and he was going to be the beginning of God's people. And from there, Stephen continues on in the biblical narrative with Joseph, making it a point to remind the religious leaders that God was with Joseph and with the people of Israel. And after Joseph, Stephen continues on to Moses, and he spends a little bit more time with Moses, primarily because Moses' story and Moses' influence is stronger in Scripture. Right? He, gets, he wrote the first five books of the Bible, so he gets a little bit more time. Okay? Um, but also it shows him the honor that he deserves because he's been accused of dishonoring Moses. Right? So he lingers there. He's like, I know about Moses. You guys think I'm dishonoring Moses. I know a lot about Moses. So let me show you some of what I know about Moses. And then he goes on and continues with that story, working his way up until the time when Solomon built the temple. All right, so you're welcome. I just saved you guys 50 verses right there. All right. And so after you get done reading all that, you might wonder, what does this have to do with Stephen's situation? Right? Like, why did you get this long run and go to, to say what you said? Why did Stephen just share a history lesson with people who are incredibly well-versed in the history of their people? Right? None better, really. Well, the story that Stephen shares shows God being with his people in various locations throughout history. Right? He wasn't just with them in the temple. He's also with them in Ur when he calls Abraham out. He's also with them in Egypt, saying, hey, they were there for 400 years. God was with them the whole time. Was there a temple in Egypt? No. Was God there? Yes. God was there. The Sanhedrin have put such a high value on the temple, and yet God was with his people long before the temple was ever built. Long before the temple was ever built. Even Solomon, who built the temple, said the temple cannot contain God. It can't contain it. And yet the religious leaders act as though there's nothing more precious in the world than this building. You can't speak out against this building. This building is precious. Stephen quotes, Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, where God himself says, Heaven is my throne and the earth my footstool. What sort of house would you build for me? Well, I mean, what house are you going to build for God? Says the Lord, or what will be my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things? And when I, when I read that, what popped into my head was the notion, like if my kids go around the house on Father's Day and go into my office and pick up my stuff and hand me that as my Father's Day gift. I mean, thanks, I guess, right? But I, I bought all that. That was mine before you gave it to me. And for us to act as though anything that we're handing back to God is, is from us is ridiculous. 
Look, God, we built you this house. You didn't build... All that stuff belonged to me before you ever started building with it. I'm the one that gave you the ability to build it. You gave me nothing. It's like God owes them something because they built this house. He says, you can't contain me in that house. God was with Abraham, Joseph, and Moses, as well as all the other people in Israel long before the temple was a thing. Long before the tabernacle was a thing. God made a covenant with his people to be their God, and so wherever the people of God are, there is God. I thought this was good from uh, pastor and author Tony Morita. He said in his commentary, that this passage points out that God appeared, God spoke, God sent, God promised, God punished, God rescued, and that God is working out his sovereign will all over the earth, but he is most certainly not confined to a building. He is not confined to a building. The temple was an amazing gift of God for his people, but they have failed to understand the broader point of its existence. They've missed it. It's not to provide a place for God to dwell. He doesn't need a place for him to dwell. Now, the, and what's happened is that the religious leaders have made an idol out of the temple. All right? They've started to worship the building instead of worshiping the God who was being pointed to from the building. All right? So now... Because this is an idol, because this is something that they worship in and of itself, they can't handle anyone speaking against it. If you are even accused of dishonoring their idol, the religious leaders in Israel will kill you for it. You could die for speaking out against the temple. And this is what Stephen points out at the end of chapter 7. In verses 51 to 60, Stephen says this, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, you also do. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels and yet have not kept it. So Stephen tells the religious leaders that they are the lawbreakers. You're the ones who dishonor Moses. You're the ones who dishonor the law. Just like your hard-hearted forefathers who rejected God's word long before you were ever a glimmer in their eye. Their ancestors persecuted the prophets because they didn't want to obey the commands of God. They wanted to do what was right in their own eyes. And so they rebelled against God. And God would send prophet after prophet after prophet, prophet trying to get them to turn back, to turn away. And if they got two in the way, they would kill the prophet. Right? I don't have to listen to you if you're dead. And so they would kill them. And so they murdered them. And just like them, Stephen says, you have murdered the righteous one that all of those prophets were speaking about. Right? You killed the prophet. You killed the one that was sent here to save you from yourself. You guys 
did that. And you're pointing at me? Stephen pulls no punches here at the end of his sermon. He says, you received the law under the direction of angels, and yet you have not kept it. The religious leaders are the problem here. Look at how many people you're, you're leading astray with your teachings. Look at how many people that you have condemned falsely so that you can keep your power. The religious leaders and the authorities are the lawbreakers. They're the ones who rejected the promised Messiah. And this goes over about as well as you would expect. Right? How do you think that turned out for him? Let's look at the rest of the chapter. 54 verses, uh, verses 54 through 60. It says, When they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down, cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. After saying this, he fell asleep. So after giving his defense, and after calling out the religious leaders, the religious leaders are furious. Absolutely furious. And here we have an example of what I was talking about earlier. Right? You have a man who is of good reputation, full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace and power, and yet... When you call sin, sin, people are going to rise up against you. People rarely want to hear that they're wrong, especially people in power. And so when he calls them out, they become enraged. They double down. Instead of listening to Stephen's message, instead of acknowledging their sin, instead of acknowledging that they need to repent and spending time repenting, the crowd is working itself up into a frenzy. All right, they're getting ready. Getting ready for, for a bad time for Stephen. They're preparing to kill him, and in the process, he gazes up into heaven, and he sees the glory of God, and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And much has been written about Jesus standing here. Um, there's a lot of people that uh, wonder about that, because in every other depiction in the New Testament, when you see Jesus talked about, it's talked about him sitting at the right hand of God. Jesus now sits because the work is done. He sits at the right hand of God. But in this moment, when Stephen is being martyred, he's standing. And so, you know, what does this mean? Well, anything that we say about it is speculation. We can't know. It doesn't say what it means. And so we can't know exactly what it means. It could be to honor Stephen, right, for his willingness to go before these people and to stand strong and not back down. Maybe he's standing in honor of Stephen. Maybe it's a sign of welcome as Jesus knows what's about to happen and he's welcoming Stephen into the, into the kingdom, into heaven. There's no way to know for sure. But Stephen acknowledging that he has seen it sets off the frenzy. Right? They were working themselves up before. As soon as he says, I see God and the Son of Man standing at his right hand, they lose it. Right? It goes from frenzy to a full-blown riot. There's no formal verdict ever issued that we're aware of before the Sanhedrin. 
right? They have worked themselves up into such a frenzy that there's no further questions, there's no verdict. Instead, a mob is formed, they lose their minds over the words of Stephen's vision, and they drag him out of the city. They act like petulant children, really. They close their ears and rush forward and grab him, and they drag him out of the city and begin to stone him to death. And honestly, them dragging him out of the city in front of witnesses is the only thing that's just about this because there was no verdict, right? There was, this is a travesty of the law. And they're so upset that Stephen is dishonoring the law. This is a travesty of the law. The only thing that they honored was dragging him out of the city instead of stoning him there in the street. And there, we get our first glimpse of Saul who's eventually going to be Paul. And I don't know if you noticed, but this guy's kind of a big deal. Okay? Uh, we don't see much about him here, but as the persecution of the church ramps up, Paul's at the, Saul is at the forefront of it. He's kicking in doors and making sure people are hauled out and held accountable for their relationship to Christ and for their positions in the church. And it says that while they're stoning Stephen, Stephen asks that one, Jesus would receive his spirit, which is the same thing that Jesus said on the cross. I commit my hands into your spirit, or I commit my spirit into your hands. And then he asks that the Lord would not hold the sin of these people against them. Does that sound familiar? Right, this is the death of Jesus being played out in the death of Stephen. So you've got this correlation here where Stephen is so much like Christ that it's hard to tell the difference between their false trials, their ministry, their false trials, and their execution. Like Jesus, Stephen stood firm in the face of his opposition, and he honors Christ by asking for forgiveness for his murderers. Right? I mean, that's amazing. So what do we do with all of this? What do we do with everything that we see in Stephen and in his ministry and in his death? About four things. All right, number one, our character matters. It matters a lot. Right? If, if nobody ever said anything about us other than those five things that were listed about Stephen— being a man of good, care, uh, of good reputation, being full of the Holy Spirit, being full of wisdom, being full of grace, and full of power, if nobody ever said anything else about us than that, we would have lived a good life. Right? If everything that we do was wrapped up in trying to achieve just that level of commitment that Stephen had, think about what the world would look like simply from our influence. Think about what it would look like in your home. Think about what it would look like in your job, in your neighborhood. Right? Wherever you do the things that you like to do. Right? We all have our hobbies. But imagine if you were the person that represented Christ and had these characteristics in each one of those places. Imagine what people would think about when they think of Jesus. Especially when you're telling them that that's the reason you're that way. When you are that way, if you are faithful with the gospel message, number two, opposition is sure. You will be opposed if you pursue the things of God in this world. 
Right? If you make it a point to push back against the darkness, the darkness is going to try to push back too. Right? Often, you know, like Satan's not really going to push against too many sleeping Christians. Right? If you're just sitting there just going about your life, doing your own thing, not really causing any ripples, why would he bother you? Right? But if you are working your way through, making sure that you are pushing against the, the evil one, you're trying to see souls saved, you're seeing people come to faith, right? there's going to be opposition for that. And we should expect it. And many of us in fear might push away from that. Well, I'm not going to do those things if I'm going to be opposed. But we should be doing the exact opposite. We should be putting on the full armor of God, preparing for battle, and rushing headlong into that opposition as people with good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, full of grace, and full of power. Number three, know your Bible. Right? How are you going to stand in opposition when you don't know what you believe? Right? When Stephen was opposed, what did he do? He went back to the beginning parts of Genesis and worked his way through all the way up to the temple. I mean, it was a summary, but do you know it well enough to summarize it? When we stand against the darkness, we have got to be anchored in something. And God's Word is the anchor. We have got to know it. We have got to memorize it. We have got to put everything that we have into it so that when we get that opposition, we stand firm. Because we know what we believe. We know what God's Word says. And we can give an account for our faith. Number four. And this, was, this is just kind of a little tag in at the end, right? Saul's story, Saul's story shows that no matter how far down the unrepentant path that anyone is, they're never too far from God to be saved. Right? Like, if you read Saul's letters, you see that this weighs heavily. I mean, he talks about being the least of the apostles. He talks about being the greatest sinner he knows. Like Paul is haunted. Somebody's past. But yet, God was not going to let him go his own way. Jesus goes after Paul on the road to Damascus. And he says, I'm the one you're persecuting and you will serve me. No one is too far gone or has sinned too harshly to not be able to be covered by the blood of Christ. But he also remembers the beauty of God's grace. That's how he can go to Romans 8, 1 and say there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. None. As one who applauded the death of the first Christian martyr, Paul knows that in Jesus, even that, as insane and harsh as that is, is covered by the blood of God. So there is no one too far gone. 
No one that you should write off in your head or in your evangelistic efforts as too far gone. If the Apostle Paul can be saved as one who persecuted the church, anyone can be saved. We just have to pray that the Holy Spirit would open their eyes to the truth. We have to be people of good reputation, willing to stand in opposition. We have to know our Bibles and we have to engage these people with the truth. Let's pray together. Father, make us all like Stephen. It's a simple but profound prayer. Help us to be a light shining in the darkness, willing to love and confront and to stand firm when opposition comes our way. Help us to love one another so that we can support each other when stuff like this comes up. We're about to see in the book of Acts the church is going to scatter because of this persecution which accomplishes your will even though it's not your desire that they be persecuted. But the church stands together in the midst of this persecution. And so, Lord, as we go from this place and as we stand firm in the opposition that the world is going to throw at us, help us to be there for each other. Help us to be strong in the Spirit. Help us to be full of wisdom, full of grace, and full of power. I ask all of this in your son's precious name.